Just to remind you that uh, this week we get to exercise our right, not in the uh, destruction of democracy, but in the celebration of democracy, we get to vote. That's what a democracy is, so vote. Now, if you don't vote and you don't like the way things came about, don't talk to me. Now, I may not like the way it comes out, but I'm going to vote. In fact, I've already voted. How many have already voted? Wow. Way to go. Thank you. Let's pray for our country and pray for the service. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this great nation we have the privilege of living in. Thank you that we can do what we're doing right now in this nation. We can stand up here and we can talk about you. We can read your word. We can celebrate you, God. And I thank you for that. I pray for our country. I pray for a revival in our country, not born of an election, but born of a redemptive process where we turn our eyes on Jesus and we find fully all of what life is about. Uh, We have been that, and I believe in large parts of our country we're still that. We love you, and we, we uh, honor you. We delight in serving you. I pray for the election day that all would go well and that people would exercise that privilege that is theirs of voting. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is coming again. I don't know if anybody said that to you recently, but uh, Jesus is coming again. I used to have a song we used to sing, uh, maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, and maybe soon. Oh, what a wonderful day that will be. Change tone there. And Jesus, my Savior, I see. Jesus is coming again. And that is the truth. In fact, people are surprised to learn that there are more references in the Bible to the second coming of Jesus Christ than there is to the first coming. In fact, it outnumbers it eight to one. Isn't that amazing? Eight to one, more references referring to the second coming of Christ than there is to the first. Scholars have actually identified 1,845 different biblical references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a big subject. We should talk about it often. In the Old Testament, No less than 17 books address the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, 23 out of the 27 books address the second coming. Seven out of 10 chapters address the return of Christ. In other words, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is coming again. I don't think the Bible, and I don't think the author of the Bible, God the Holy Spirit, wants us to miss this one great truth. Jesus is coming again. What a day that will be, huh? When my Jesus I shall see, and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. We find James speaking of this, James in chapter 5, verse 7, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. But he puts that in reference to be patient until the Lord returns. In the book of Acts, you'll recall when Jesus was ascending and the angels that were gathered there, they said, as they were looking up, gazing in the disappearance of Jesus, and he told them, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This Jesus 
who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Even in his ascension, there is the reference to his coming. Of course, the book of Revelation speaks of his coming. In Revelation 22 and verse 12, it says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. That means soon. And he says, My reward is with me. Revelation 1.7, when it's introducing Christ, which is what Revelation is all about, it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it will be. Amen. Matthew speaks of this, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Paul speaks of that to the people of Philippi, and he says, We, are, we eagerly wait for a Savior. He speaks to Titus, one of his disciples, and he says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love what John has to say, and he's talking in First John. We'll read those verses in a moment. But John was with the disciples in the upper room discourse. And in that discourse, there was uh, he, Jesus had noticed that his disciples had lost their focus, and I think they were concerned about not only the death of Jesus, but their own death. And I love what Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you so. For I go to prepare a place for you, uh, that where I am, that, and I go prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And when I come, I will receive you to myself. He spoke the fact that death doesn't end at all. What's going on right now doesn't end at all. There is a coming day when that will transpire. Matthew goes on to say, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Again, he says uh, later on in that book, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, Mark talks about the same thing. And this one he addresses being ready for that coming. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when He comes in glory. And He says similar things, speaking of the people of Thessalonica. And they were confused about the coming of God, but here He says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and the soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think the evidence is overwhelming in Scripture that Jesus is coming again. I don't think that's the question. There's no question that He's coming again. Oh, some may question that that don't believe, but as believers, we celebrate that He's coming again. It's not a matter of whether He's coming or not. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready for His coming? I hope every one of you can say right now, I'm ready for His coming. When I was studying this passage, I was drawn back to the time that I was in, in college studying uh, Greek. And the days that I was prepared in my lesson, I would sit in a noticeable place. Because you know something? I didn't care if the professor called on me, because I was ready. I was, but the days that I wasn't, and there were those days that I hadn't looked at the lesson plan at all. And, I, and if he asked me to decline a noun or conjugate a verb or even read the passage in the Greek, I would have said, I'm sorry, I'm ashamed, I'm not ready. You ever felt that way? 
not ready. And that's one thing to be not ready for a Greek exam. But it's another thing not to be ready for the return of the Lord. And I think that sometimes we've lived in a pattern of life that we, we just hope He doesn't come back today because you're not ready. There are things that are going on in your life that you haven't squared away, you haven't made right, you're not living a holy life, and you would be ashamed. When I was just a teenager, I worked in a coal prospecting. I think I've shared this story with you. And what we had to do, we had to hike back onto the side of the mountain, and there was an opening there, and we would go into that opening about, uh, about 30 feet to 40 feet, and there was a, a face of coal there, about uh, 48 inches high. And we had to take coal samples out of that. Well, the way we did that is we had a, a breast auger, and the uh, bit on that was six feet long. And a breast auger is what you put against your chest, and the, the bars are here that you, you twist, and you lean against that, putting the pressure on that to drill the hole back in, which you'll be able, six foot deep, you'll be able to put the dynamite into it and then blow it up, and you'll get dry samples of what the coal is like. There were six holes that had to be drilled. There were three of us there, so that meant each one of us had to drill two holes. I volunteered first, and I went in there, and I drilled my holes. I came out, and they said, man, you got those done already? I said, yeah. They said, that's the fastest we've ever seen this stuff done. I'm, I'm just a rookie there. And, th- and I, didn't, I don't think they were impressed. Maybe they were impressed with my work habit. I don't know. But that's not what made me drill the holes that quickly. There was a big rock that was hanging down just above where we were working. And at that time, I was not walking right with God. There were some things that were going on in my life that were not honoring to Him. And I knew that that rock had my name on it. It was the rock of judgment. This was my day. What a terrible way to live, to live in fear and in shame and allow sin to still reign in our lives. That's not the way we're prepared. So let's turn to the passage that we want to look at. John's addressing this. I'm not surprised that he's addressing that because he was there with Jesus when he talked about his return. He was there with him when he spoke many times about his return. And now in this letter that he's writing, five chapters long, he speaks to them about his return. And so if you'll turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, we begin at verse 28 and go through chapter 3, verse 3. Now he says, Now little children, abide in me, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. This is an awkward time, you know, chapter divisions are not written in the original language. They're not designed. This is where, and I think it should have not had a chapter division here because the thought goes on. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope 
fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. This is the Word of God, and this is the text of our study for this morning. I want you to note in here that he makes reference to his return four times. Notice in verse 28 when he says, when he appears, that's the first reference, not be ashamed at his coming, that's the second reference. And then when it goes on down and it says, and um, verse 2 of chapter 3, behold, uh, now we are the children of God, it is not yet appeared as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, third, we shall be like him. And everyone who has this hope, that is the hope of his coming, is the fourth reference to his appearance. In five verses, there are four references to the return of Christ. And it's a significant event. In fact, it is uh, crucial that we have some basic understanding of what God is trying to illustrate for us here and what John is saying to us in terms of being ready. So my question again is for all of us, for me, for you, are, are you ready? Do you have confidence that if Jesus were to come right now, that there would be no shame, no fear, there would be no anxiety, you have the confidence that, in fact, you're eager for the Lord's return. You're eager and ready for it in that process. It would be interesting if I could read your faces and see, ah, you're ready. Oh, you're ready. Oh, you're in my Greek class with me. You're in my Greek class with me, aren't you? You're not quite ready for this, are you? Today, I'm going to tell you what he says in regards to this. Four things that he says to us about being ready. The first one I find in verse 1 of chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. I think some of you may have, behold, what kind of love or this great love that the Father has bestowed upon us. The first prerequisite for you to be ready for the coming of God is to know that you have been loved by God redemptively, because that's really what we're making reference to here, because we're called the children of God. Now here he's saying, behold, which is a note in which he's saying, this is a, this is a great revelation. This is, a, this is a, a, a truth that ought to grip you to the core of your being. This is something amazing. And that is the love of God that he has bestowed on us. Now that bestowed upon us is not something we have done. This is something that God has done to us and for us. It is a gift, and in this case, it bears the fruit in this that we would be called children of God. Now, we can make a number of references to scriptures that speak of the love of God. God so loved the world, John 3.16. God so loved the world. And then he made a great sacrifice that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the love of God. Or we can read in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, undeserving, rebellious against God, Christ died for us. That is the love towards us. It is a redemptive love. It is a self-sacrificing expression of love. 
Or I love what John says in John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The love of God expressed in our life, finding its fulfillment, means that we have now been placed in the family of God. It is right for you to say that you are a child of God. And I think sometimes we don't do that. Many times we can talk about, well, what family do you belong to? Well, I'm part of the Jones tribe. And I, you know, they go back. In fact, somebody was just asking me about that this week. And so, and then where did your, those, they come from? And then where did they come from? And I'm thinking, well, that's not my primary identity. My primary identity, yes, I am the son of Doug and Phyllis Jones. But much more importantly than that, I'm a child of God. By his love expressed to me, I am a child. Now, I want you to understand that when it says that you're a child of God, just as I was born to my mom and dad, Doug and Phyllis Jones, they're in Omar, West Virginia by a quack doctor. Uh, True. And uh, I, I was born, when I was born at that time, I was born with characteristics and, and I hear that being brought out even as I walk through life. Somebody would say that have knew my mom or m- knew my dad. They'll say, you know, you've got the eyes of your mother. Uh, you know, you've got the temperament of your dad. You do this when you do that when you walk. You're, you're just like your dad in that. My sister said to me recently when they were walking me walk down the path, they said, I thought that was dad going down there. It is, it is natural then, in this case, supernatural, that we take on the characteristics of our Father, our Heavenly Father. In fact, He infuses into us His nature so that we can act like children of God. But he is the one that loves us in that, in that capacity. And I love, and, it, and you know, some people uh, would say, uh, we're the children of God. Yes, we're going to realize that one of these days. But I love what he goes on to say, and he says, and such we are. Beloved, we are now the children of God. I begin to celebrate all of the privilege of calling him my father, our father. I get that blessing to know. Uh, I was talking to a young mother this week uh, on Thursday and describing then the new baby that has entered into their home there. And um, I said, so tell me, what's going on with all of that? What, what is happening? She says, I just cannot believe when I hold that little baby, the love that comes out of my life for that child. Uh, it's, It's not something I put on. It's something that just flows out. It it is a natural expression for me to love that child. Jen Jen was describing that recently. We were talking about the birth of our first child a number of years ago. And uh, and she was saying, I said, so tell me about that. Of course, I can only do it from a father's perspective. And to me, it's just a big celebration. I'm not, I didn't carry the baby, kick and so forth. And she said to me, and I wish I could have taken a picture of her at the moment she was telling me that. She said, I saw Kimberly for the first time. (laughs) And what was coming out of her eyes, what was coming out of her mouth, was just expression of love. Even though that was 
almost 50 years ago. But it was the love that she had. She didn't have to say, okay, here's the child. I guess I'm going to have to love this kid, you know. It's here now. What are we going to do? It just flowed out. Do you not understand? And, and this person went on to say, I'll finish the story. I, I said, you go, please continue to describe what it's like now being the care of, giver of this child and went on to describe. And I said, do you mind if I come back to the love that you were talking about that was flowing out of your life for this child? No. What do you want to know? I said, what does that teach? Oh, she says, what it teaches me about God is if I can love this child this way with my limitations and my sin nature, oh, And she said, as I found the love of God flowing out of my life to this child, at that moment when I realized it, I felt the love of God surrounding me. I couldn't escape it. We are the children of God. Never minimize that. We are the children of God, those who have been bought by his blood. Now, this goes on. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed, something he chose to do in and of himself for his own glory, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And now, if you're looking for your significance in the world, notice what it says, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Please, please, quit trying to find your significance horizontally to be recognized. Oh, maybe these people will like me because I can do this, or maybe because I, I have this, or I, I... No, no, no. The world will never endorse you. They hated Jesus, our Lord and Savior. They hate you too. They think you're weird, honestly. And I know you, and I think you are too. No. <laughs> I think you're weird. Because they do not know the dynamic of our life is that we're the children of God. That makes us different. We can't be the same. You cannot have the nature of God infused within you and be the same. And by the way, that is the primary teaching of 1 John. 1 John is saying that it is impossible to have an encounter with God and not be morally transformed. It's impossible. Can't go on to be the same. You're different in that. All right, but he goes on here. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It does not appear as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Your your, uh, being brought into the family of God as a child of God is something that is a reality now. But now he's talking about something that's in the future. There's going to be a transformation of your life that in that transformation, it's going to allow you to see God in a different way, a way that you've never seen Him before. You're going to to see Him as He is, because you will be characterized by purity. Your sin nature will be eradicated. That's called the glorification process. In justification, I'm delivered from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, I'm delivered from the power of sin. In glorification, I'm delivered from the presence of sin. I will have no sin in me, which because he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I will be able to see God in such a way that I have never seen him before. I'm a child of God now. There's going to be future things and inheritance is going to come to me and it's going to allow me to even celebrate life in a way that I've never celebrated in my life life. Amen. What a day that will be. Now, listen, yes, what am I going to look like? And for some of us, we are hoping there will be radical changes. I mean, you know, we think about that, but here's, and and I will, I, I think there will be. 
Because uh, when, when we talk about our resurrected bodies, when Paul's trying to talk about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he compares it to a seed, a seed that is placed into the ground. Now, we can take a seed, and we can look at that, and we say, I love this seed. This seed is so beautiful. I love the shape of this seed. I love the color of this seed. I love the, the texture of this seed. I love this seed. But that seed, when it's placed into the ground, doesn't bring out that seed. It's, you know, it's amazing to me. It brings out an apple tree. My, our little granddaughter in Chicago took a seed from her lunch at school and planted it. And that thing grew. And it's just still growing. And now dad doesn't know what to do with that tree in the yard. So he convinced it it needs to go on grandpa's property up in Wisconsin, that tree. And so she really cried when this tree left. She fell in love, not with the seed. She went out to see if the seed was producing anything, and it produced something that didn't even look like the seed. You see that, don't you? So I don't know, I'm going to be planted in this whole body, but something, and you can just rejoice over something glorious is going to come out of that. What it's going to look like, I don't know. That's what he tells me, all right? So the first way you can know that you're ready for God is that you know You've been bathed in the love of God. You have been redemptively transformed, born again by the power of God to become. Transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You remember what John says in 844? It says in John 844, he says, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. That's what I was before, but now I have a new father. I'm his child. I'm God's child, and I can live in a new way with God. Now, if you don't know what that is to live, if you don't know what it is to be loved by God, to be overwhelmed by God, to know that you are living differently and you're not maybe all that you could be or should be, but you're not what you used to be, if you don't know that, then you're not ready. You're not ready for the coming of God. You haven't been redeemed. All right? I didn't. That's what the Scripture says here. The second reason that we can be ready. Now, by the way, that being ready here is something that God does to us. The second one is also what God does to us. Look at verse 29 of chapter 2. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. This is the born-again experience that He speaks of here. Now, this passage is such a marvelous verse here. He said, if you know that He is righteous... Now, when we speak of voice in the Greek language, now that I talk about that Greek class, I did learn something in there. We talk about uh, three, three, you know, we talk about the voice of active voice, I hit the ball. We can talk a middle voice, I hit the ball with myself. I mean, hit the ball, I hit myself with the ball. Or we can talk about the passive voice, and that is the ball hit me. Now, by the way, that was worth coming this Sunday for that, wasn't it? Aren't you glad you heard that? But I tell you, there's marvelous truth that is hidden here. Do you know that that when it says that, for if you know that He is righteous, there is no voice there? There's no active, there's no passive, and there's no middle. You know what that's saying? He is and He has always been, not through actions of His own, not through actions that He put upon Himself that He habitually practices, or not what somebody else has done to Him. He is by nature righteous. There is no immorality in him. There is no shadow of darkness within him. There is no deception. There is no sin. It is who he is. He has been that. 
He will be that and he'll always be that. He will be there tomorrow when you talk to him, the next day or yesterday when you talk to him. That's he. That's who he is. Now he's righteous. Now that concerns me because I'm not righteous. All of my righteousness are as filthy rags. Isaiah tells us that. So I'm not pure. I know that there is sin within me. But look what he does here in this. This righteous being that can only judge unrighteousness because of his character says, you know that everyone who practices righteousness, how did I learn to practice righteousness? And by the way, practices righteousness is present active uh, imperative. Again, a reason to come. Present means habitually you practice righteousness as a command from God. Now, this is something I do, but I cannot do that until I come to the understanding that is born of God. That verse there is passive. That means God has done something to me. When we talk about salvation being of the Lord, and it's not born of mankind, that means not only am I loved by God, but I have been born again by the power of God to act upon me to make all of my unrighteousness as white, clean, acceptable presence before God. Now, what he's saying is that you must, if you're going to be ready for the coming of Christ, you know that you have been born again. And in that born again, there is a whole new capacity within you to habitually practice righteousness. Now, we know from Adam and Eve that the nature of man, once the fall came about, the nature of man was to try to do righteousness in and of himself. That's what he tried to do. They tried to clothe themselves to make themselves acceptable. They hid themselves because they knew they weren't acceptable to God. And mankind, ever since Adam and Eve, has been trying to clothe himself in the clothing that will make himself acceptable to God. And all we're doing is playing the game of the emperor who has no clothes. We're only pretending. We're acting like that. We know. We know that we have sin within us. We know that we have greed and anger and jealousy and bitterness. We know that. And no matter what you try to do to transform that, you can't. But God can and does. I love that expression, born again. You know, when, when, when I was born the first time, physical born, I was born with all of the capacities to live out whatever was in that seedbed of conception, to live out my life, to be all that is going to take place in that life right there. I had that capacity. And over time, I've just become that. And, um, and that's, that's the birth experience. But when he talks about us being born again, that seed of righteousness that is planted within us, and we have all things pertaining to life and godliness, it's in you at that point of conception. And the beauty thing of, uh, of sanctification is progressively learning how to live that life out always before God. Now, that doesn't mean that you will not sin. You will sin. All of us sin. Jesus said that. P Peter asked him, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? He said, no, 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 no. Seventy times seven. Jesus says, I do know the nature of man. I do know the battle he's going to have, and it's going to require a lot of forgiveness. And that's why John is able to tell us in the first chapter there, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a capacity to come back, but there is no way that you will habitually stay in a state of sin. 
And we all know that. When we move into a sin, we think, oh no, this is not where I should be. And may I say to you, the longer you linger in that state of knowing you shouldn't be there, the longer you linger there, the greater the calloused heart develops. What you need to take action is immediately. As soon as you have the conviction from God that what you just did is wrong and not honorable to God, you not only need to make that right with God by confession, but you need to make it right by your fellow man. But I can live righteously. The second way we can know is because not only God has loved me, what He did, but He has made me be born again unto righteousness. Those are things that He did. But now we see things that, two things we need to do. One is, look at this very first verse here. It says, now little children, I love that expression, abide in me. Habitually, Find your connection of intimacy with me so that when he appears, we will have confidence, not shrink away, no shame at his coming. So that means then that now that I have been loved by God redemptively, that I have been born again by God in righteousness, I now have the capacity to abide in God. Now, Pastor Tom talked about this last week, but I want you to look with me to John chapter 15. Because I want to answer, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Jesus explains that to us. We don't even have to speculate on that. He explains that. John chapter 15. Here it says, right this. I am the true vine, verse 1, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. That's, it. That's, that's Jesus speaking here. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, this is the perfect illustration. Jesus is using the illustration of a branch that's hooked into the vine. Or, or a, a branch that is hooked into a tree. That, as long as it is drawing its nourishment from that vine or tree, it will flourish. It will grow. It will be successful. Any branch, and we've seen a lot of those recently, that is just out in the ground, it's going to die because it's not connected. So, what we're talking about here is a vital, habitual connection with God. We see that, and it's, a, and it's an expression of connected intimacy, belonging. Then he goes on, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in me, the vine, so it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So if anything's going to prosper, it's going to be because you're connected. I am the vine, you are the branches, verse 5. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, a mere fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in me, you can ask any whatever you ask, and it will be done. Now, here's the interesting thing, that he says something in verse uh, uh, 7 that is different in verse 4. Look what he says in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. So there is that relationship. But now he comes down here in verse 7, if you abide in me, and he adds, my word abides in you, that means then he's giving us the link by which we can have that dynamic relationship with God of intimacy that it flows to us through the word of God. This is his inspired word. We have that connection. It's life. Now, here's the problem with us is, is that 
we try to draw life from too many other horizontal things. And we really ought to be saying, God, you are more than enough. You can meet all my needs. You are completely fulfilling everything that I could ever expect from life. And we may, it's an insult to God when we suggest that God's not enough. And I have to compliment or supplement that in some way. God is enough. I think of this in terms of, of um, thinking of a baby again and the umbilical cord. That baby, when it's in the mom, is connected to life through the umbilical cord. That umbilical cord gets severed, the child dies. Everything that that baby needs for growth and nurturing and, uh, and fulfillment is found in that umbilical cord connection. So if you can see it like this, then we are all going around slinging <laughs> our umbilical cords. <laughs> kind of an ugly picture, isn't it? We're slinging our umbilical cords, and we go like this. We go in, and we think, aha, here's where I can find life. And we hook that umbilical cord, and we try to suck life out of that. And we think, well, that's not very fulfilling. Pull away. Pop in over here. And that's not very fulfilling. Then we go, pop in over here. There's some things that have got pockmarks all over it where we've been sucking life out of it or trying to. Let me tell you something. There's only one place, biblically speaking, that you can, that's God and His Word. His Word. And that's where I find the intimacy. That's where I find my sweet, deep conversations with God. Okay? That's something we have to do. That's something we can know. We can be ready. God, I'm experiencing life from you. And you know, Paul said it so simply, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The transition from my life to death is minimal. Really. Because I'm so connected with Jesus that it just doesn't make that much difference. Now, some of us may think, oh man, I've got to, I'd have to leave this. I wouldn't be able to do that. The fourth one then, and finally, is verse 3 of chapter 3, the fourth way. And everyone who has this hope, that is the hope of His coming, fixed on Him, that is, the hope is not on something else, it is on Him, God Himself, Christ Himself. And here's where it goes. It purifies Himself, and the standard of purity is Christ Himself, just as He is pure. And that purity means that we begin to digest ourselves of sinful patterns and sinful habits in that process. And if I'm practicing the purity, that means that I'm going to live in a habitual state of being fully fessed up to God and in a right relationship with Him. I'm going to be there. Do you know what, how joyful it is to live sin-free? Do you know how miserable it is to live with sin in your life? When I was up at the men's retreat up in Alaska, we had, um, I was talking about um, the, the strongholds that we've allowed to grip our lives, and we no longer walk in the light as He is in the light. We live in the shadows of our salvation. And we now have redefined Christianity as being less than liberating. It's just that we always have to live with this dark shadow of, of un, not measuring up and the sin that is there, and we go back. 
When I shared it with those men, I said, men, and we had been breaking up in small groups, I said, today we're going to do it different, tonight, we're going to do it differently. I said, I want each one of you to go right in this room right now. There are about 30 men, and I'm doing the same. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to ask God, what has had a grip in my heart for a long time that's not honoring and pleasing to you? What is it that I've been fighting with in my own strength that I need to yield to you and let you give me the victory? What is it? And we got down, and there was serious business being done with God during that time. One of the guys that was down on his knees and stayed longer than any of the rest, he just didn't bow his head. He literally physically got down on his knees. He was praying, and he still prayed, and he prayed. And even afterwards, some of the men came up and laid hands on him and prayed. And he came to me the next day. His name happened to be Mike. And Mike said, uh, I want you to know something. I've had a stronghold in my life for over 20 years in my life that I've never gained victory over. Last night, I gained victory over that. I've been set free. And I said, oh, that's good. He said, no, 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 no. That's not the best part of it. Last night, I dreamed. Jesus was in my dream. And he said to me, do you not understand that through my power, you have been set free? And the radiance of his face of being set pure, the purity of his life. Please, friends, do not redefine Christianity to suggest that there are shadows. And that's just part of what you have to learn to live with. God redeemed you for freedom's sake. God redeemed you that you could walk in the light. You don't have to have those pockets of sin that characterize your life. Come out into the light and enjoy all that God has for us. So, am I ready? If I've been bathed in the love of God, born again by His work in my life, if I've been made pure, born again by His work, if I'm abiding in Him, If I'm fighting progressively the sin that can want to grip hold of me and rob me and suck me of life, if I'm fighting against that, you know something? I'm ready. I'm ready. Lord, thank you that Jesus Christ has prepared for us to be ready. And there's no reason we can't be ready. We can anticipate with great boldness your coming. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.